0: Welcome to Brain and Event. We are delighted to be rejoined by John Martin Fisher, one of our favorite guests. We've recorded two other fantastic episodes and uh, this will be our hat trick. We're gonna be talking about immortality today. John, would you like to start with a thought
1: experiment? So I'm going to compare and contrast two well-known thought experiments. The more well-known one in contemporary philosophy was offered by the famous British and also he taught in California, philosopher Bernard Williams in his well-known article, The Macropolis Case, Reflections on the Tedium of Immortality. He discussed a fictional character who went under the initials EM, but one of her instantiations was Elena Macropolis. She was the daughter of a court physician in the Middle Ages, and the father had developed an elixir of eternal life. More specifically, an elixir that would give her 300 more years of life under favorable physical conditions and reasonably good environmental conditions, we assume. And she's already lived 333 years. She's actually taken the elixir once. She is biologically at the age 33. And now she has the choice of whether to take it or not. She actually chooses not to take the elixir because she finds her life boring and alienating. As she says, everything is the same. Nothing is really rewarding anymore. As Williams would say, she didn't have any more projects that were meaningful and gave her a rewarding life. So she chose not to take the elixir. When I heard this thought experiment, I was somewhat surprised and thought about it a bit more, but then I came across. A thought experiment by another well-known philosopher, Thomas Nagel, the American philosopher, taught for many years at Princeton and then New York University. And this is his thought experiment. Suppose that you are approached and you're given the following choice. You know, we will give you one more week of life under favorable circumstances, and you're given one more week of life, or immediate painless death. And let's just assume that you're able to arrange your affairs and so forth before this. So that's not an issue. What he points out is almost everyone would choose to live one more week. But then if you're told, of course, after that week, you will be given essentially the same choice. One more week of life or immediate death. Ad infinitum, or not ad infinitum, but we could imagine an indefinite series of these choice situations. And if you reasonably anticipate that you will say yes at every choice point then nagel points out it's reasonable to conclude that you would choose it as a one-shot deal you would choose immortality or living forever and that seems very plausible so some people find the macropolis case kind of decisive against immortality but others find the nagel case decisive in favor of it so those are two thought experiments we might think about their intention.
2: So essentially, what's the difference between the two thought experiments in the setup? So in the Williams case, it's that you just need to you need to decide for the rest of your existence whether you're going to be immortal, you're going to take the elixir, whereas in the Nagel case, you just have to decide for the next week at every point.
1: It's a little more complicated, but that's the idea. The complication is you're only given three hundred years in the Acropolis case, but we could imagine it. The way Williams treats it, it's not just 300 years, but it's essentially forever because he thinks that after 300 years, you've got to have all the problems that you would have if even if you lived longer already. So you could think of it as an elixir that would give you eternal life forever, not just 300 years, versus a thought experiment where it's week by week, and then you extrapolate from that to a one-shot deal. Okay,
2: Is it? then a difference in commitment. It's sort of, the idea is, okay, I just have to decide for the next week in the Nagel case. And a week seems quite close. So so I don't have to think too much about what I'm going to do indefinitely. I just have to think about what I'm going to do for the next week. And then sort of unbeknownst to me, we extrapolate that, well, I'll make the same decision every week, but I needn't. I could next week make a different decision. We're just saying it would be illogical to do so, but I could. Versus, In the Williams case, I have to make the decision now about the next 300 plus years.
1: Yes, and I agree that might affect one's choice or it might be that in the Nagel thought experiment, we're pretty quick to think that we would choose the extra week because it's just a week. But it's pretty clear that we could extend whatever concerns and projects and cares we have for at least one week. But then if you think more expansively about forever or even 300 years, it becomes a little more difficult or, you know, maybe I can't envisage my projects going. So maybe it's just psychologically different or maybe it's deeply, you know, as it were, content wise different to think about forever versus a week. So that's an interesting thought. I, one thing I want to point out and, is that I think it's kind of a no-brainer that I would not choose to live forever if I didn't have an exit strategy or an exit possibility. So if I couldn't arrange for my own assisted death, you know, then I wouldn't want to live forever. I could be then trapped in a horrible situation, you know, and especially if, I get injured or I get ill and I can't be regenerated or can't be put back in a situation where I'm not going to be in pain, it would be a tremendous risk, right? If I couldn't end my life or even if I'm physically comfortable and in a clean environment, (laughs) I could be so bored and so alienated from life that I wouldn't want to continue. Again, it would be like a trap, like life in prison forever. So I think that the thought experiment wouldn't be that interesting if I were just choosing forever without an excellence, right? or even 300 years without an extra. That's too risky. But Williams doesn't make his argument based on risk of that sort. He thinks that inevitably, given human nature, kind of creatures we are with a specific character we would not be able to continue to live even if we had an exit strategy. I mean, it, it, the problem is not that we would be trapped. The problem is that we would be totally bored inevitably. But, so what I would want to say is in both thought experiments in the background, we want the assumption that you would have an exit strategy. You wouldn't be
0: trapped. So Lionel Shriver, her latest book is called, Should We Stay or Should We Go? and the idea is that there are these two characters who face this choice of killing themselves and she has a series of different iterations and one of the iterations there is an elixir of life that basically reverses the aging process until everyone kind of looks about the age of 25. and she gets to play in this fictional realm with what would that look like and people do try everything they change their sex they change their race they travel the world they get married they get divorced they have multiple different kinds of sex relationships and after many hundreds of years of doing this sense of boredom sets in and the couple then sort of revisit this notion of saying well we've done everything that we could ever possibly want to do should we kill ourselves and you know it recurs back to the sort of thing that's been going on throughout the novel and they say maybe not just yet. And I think the idea of having to end your own life is quite a difficult thing to do. I think, as you said, when you're faced with these two difficult choices, the one is the burden of never being able to escape. That regardless of how your life goes, you are now trapped. You're this immortal being that can't get out. And that seems terrifying on some level. But the idea of having to make the choice to die is also a difficult one. So David Benatar, you know, takes the view that it would be better never to have been, that he thinks one of the reasons why being born is bad is because you will one day die. You'll be annihilated, and he thinks that's a bad thing. I think he thinks that some kind of immortality, given you'd have to really have fantastic conditions, might be as good as never being born. And I think that means never enduring any pain. In other words, if the kind of immortal being that we're imagining has no suffering at all, It's just never ending joy for eternity, that you're never having to be concerned about, you know, losing control of your limbs or of suffering. He thinks that's where we can get to kind of coin flip moments of it's as good as never being born. But given the nature of human reality, he thinks we should always pick don't be born and you definitely shouldn't
1: bring new people into the world. It's interesting, you know, the Talmud saying that, oh, never to have been born, but how many people are so lucky not one in a thousand? In any case, Yeah, they're the same in the sense that you wouldn't die in either case. If you're not never born or if you're immortal, there's no death. So you save yourself that. And I think the thought experiment about immortality would not require that you never feel pain or suffering. It's just that overall your life is worthwhile. And, you know, in our mortal lives, we do have pain and suffering. And some people have so much that they might have preferred never to have been born and they might wish a sudden and painless death. in places where position assisted to is is permissible, they may well choose that. But the other point about Benatar's position, the idea that you could live forever without any suffering, or just joy, reminds me of the, a certain religious conception, the afterlife, in which if you're good, you go to heaven. Perhaps your soul separates from your body and your soul is united with God, and you live in Uh, eternal bliss. And presumably there's it's a kind of immortality, and it doesn't involve suffering. And I think it's a very attractive vision to many people. You know, some people can't bring themselves to believe in a God or such a God with that particular concept of the afterlife, but it is at least a reason why some people might wish for such a God. So it's interesting that some people think it's quite obvious that we wouldn't choose living forever, even under various favorable circumstances, even though they think of an afterlife of that sort as very desirable. So I think there's a kind of tension there too. My own view is, again, that life can be rewarding, can be meaningful, even if it involves significant suffering. So I think it's not the case that for everyone, it would have been better never to have existed. Kind of hard to argue decisively one way or another on that, though.
2: So I've got two questions. The one is, how bad is boredom? Is it so bad that it's worth ending your life, or at least not choosing to extend your life indefinitely? And I and the second question has to do with that distinction. Because I'm wondering, in the Macropolis case, I might have misunderstood the case, but Is it the choice between continuing an ordinary length of existence versus taking the elixir and continuing virtually indefinitely compare that with the nagel case where the choice is between death right now and another week and there might be a distinction between choosing to die versus choosing to continue living for a finite period of time and we want the finite period of time under all things being equal we don't want to choose to die right now and that might explain the difference in the intuitions in the two cases
1: excellent Well, both your suggestions now about how there might be a difference between the two cases are very interesting and that I haven't seen that point discussed in the literature I think the idea is in the macropolis case the elixir works for 300 years and now it's going to wear off. It's not going to be efficacious anymore. Now, as you point out, there could be two different conceptions going forward. One is that you die immediately. Now, e- essentially your life is over because you've lived so long. You, you don't have the resources without the help of the elixir, but another way of thinking about it is, well, you go along, you now pick up as the 33 year old physiologically that individual, and therefore you're likely to have the normal length of life. And I think that's just under-described. Yeah, I don't think it's explicit. And your choice might depend on that. I'm guessing that most of us who write about it are assuming that if she chooses to not take the elixir, to destroy it, she will die soon. That's the idea. Not that she will now live 50 more years, but it may well, you know, depend your orientation to the case or your choice might depend on that difference. Is boredom so bad? Okay. So this raises lots of questions, like what boredom is and the different kinds of boredom. I think many people would distinguish a more superficial and transitory kind of boredom, the kind of boredom that we often experience as human beings. You know, I'm guessing some of my students experience some of that boredom but at least some of my lectures, although I don't want to focus on that. We all get bored sometimes, And but it's transitory and we realize it will go away and it's not a deep boredom that might be equivalent to deep depression. It's interesting that in the history of discussion of these related phenomena, Especially early on, melancholy or depression wasn't really distinguished from boredom. They were very, they're very similar phenomena. They're both phenomena in which you don't have any interest, in, don't have any motivation, or nothing in interests you. You can't get off the couch. There are, of course, differences analytically between deep boredom and depression, but they're very closely related. So I think most people distinguish a kind of ordinary boredom and hyperboredom where hyper boredom is more like deep depression you don't believe it will ever end and you are totally immersed in the boredom as it were you can't escape it and it totally defines you there's nothing it's like a deep intractable now is so the first kind of boredom is not so bad the second one does seem to be something that would not be preferable to death. In fact, death might well be preferable. So that's, I think, the kind of way through this thicket that I would prefer. But with regard to the ordinary boredom, or let's say a moderate, at least severe case or significant boredom that you think will last a considerable amount of time and kind of take up at least part of your life and your practical orientation. Again, this is a phenomenon of ordinary life. Many people feel this way not everybody and yet their lives even from their own subjective points of view are still worth living many of us feel pain and suffering and depression even clinical depression but that doesn't make us feel our lives are not worth living at all or that we would choose death so one of my mantras as it were is that we shouldn't apply double standards to ordinary finite life and indefinitely long life And if, you know, of course, sometimes in ordinary life, we feel boredom. Sometimes it's even significant, but we don't feel that implies that we should end our lives. And so I think the same moral should obtain in immortal life. Now, if you say in immortal life, inevitably, you would descend into intractable hyperboredom, then that would be a problem. But I don't see an argument for that. I mean, you'd have to argue for that
2: there's a wonderful science fiction author named peter f hamilton and he has a series of books i can't remember which one it is because i've read a few of them and in one of them people are immortal and he discusses this problem that people have that over time they just accumulate so many experiences that they become repetitious and boring and something standardly that happens in this novel is that people go through selective amnesia operations to remove certain memories so that they can re-experience certain things. I mean, for example, I've had this thought before that there's certain novels or certain TV series that I think are so good, and I wish I hadn't seen them because I have a rule in my life that I don't re-watch TV series that that I really like because there's too much good stuff out there. And one of them is Battlestar Galactica. I wish I could forget it so that I could re-watch it. And in this world that Peter F. Hamilton envisions, that's exactly what happens. People in these immortal, endless existences start to remove memories. There are questions around whether your personal identity persists if you do this, and I have a psychological criterion of identity that I prefer, and so that's going to be threatened. But assuming you are sufficiently coherent to continue, that seems preferable to to ending your life entirely, and solves the boredom problem, doesn't it?
1: I think that's one way of addressing and perhaps solving the boredom problem. I think... Even if you have a memory or psychological account of personal identity over time, the way it works, even in our finite lives, is that our total set of mental states at a time is connected to our total set of mental states at the adjacent previous time, and also then tomorrow's total set Will be related in certain ways to today's, and the day after tomorrow will be related to tomorrow. And what you have is a set of links in a chain, and each adjacent link is directly connected, but the distal links, you know, at the beginning and the end are not directly related. And so I don't have any memories at all of myself when I was three years old. I mean, I've seen photos of myself bundled up in the snow in Cleveland, Ohio, and I just take it that my parents are being sincere and telling me that I was born in Cleveland and that is what my birth certificate says and so forth, but I have no memories, but I'm the same person. And it's arguably, if you have the memory theory of personal identity, it's because the direct links are connected in the right way that makes you know, me the same individual now as I was then, to put it a little bit paradoxically. So that's the way I think it would work also in immortality. And I think I can be the same individual even over hundreds, thousands of years in virtue of the chains being of the right sort, even though in a thousand years, I'm sure I won't even remember this interview, no matter how compelling it will be and rewarding and enjoyable. So. Having said that, I think that in an immortal life, inevitably I would lose memories, and I could even choose to delete certain memories and still be the same individual. I don't see why not, and that would be one way of at least addressing the boredom problem. Now, of course, if you delete too many memories, maybe you would then at least weaken the chains that, that bind you together, the links that bind you together And then there will be questions about at what point you actually are not the same individual. But I agree, you could probably address it this way. And there's some contemporary philosophers who don't really take into account memory loss at all. But I think there are other ways as well of addressing the boredom problem. I mean, I think the fundamental issue for me is whether it really is true that we would inevitably become deeply or hyper bored, And I'm not convinced that's right, even if we have all our memories I think that's something that is highly contentious. And I just put it this way, we could discuss it in a greater length, but when I first read the Williams paper, as I said, I was very surprised. And then upon reflection, I found it really implausible that after 300 years or 330 years, I would have run out of pleasures and run out of rewarding relationships, love, friendship, intellectual projects that I love, literature, art, the whole idea that within 300 years, all that would go just struck me as being radically plausible. I mean, I lived in England for a year in Oxford when I was a graduate student, and I think the English countryside in the winter when it's cold and it's overcast day after day, maybe Bernard Williams was too much affected by that. But you know, maybe I have a different attitude living in sunny California, but I, I just think it's really implausible that we would lose everything that all our projects, everything that gives meaning to our lives, everything that propels us into the future within 300 years. And then upon reflection, I don't see why that would inevitably be true even after thousands of years. At least that's my view.
0: So a couple of more sci-fi cases to play around with this idea. The one is a character from the Hitchhiker's Guide called Marvin the Paranoid Android. And there's a sequence where he winds up being put onto a planet that's desolate for I think it's tens of thousands of years and eventually life starts to evolve. And so it seems to matter what the context is. In other words, being alone in the desert for thousands of years would be that deep kind of boredom and not being able to exit it would seem horrible. But if you're in a world where you've got constant innovation and change. Then you don't run into the problem that you'd be repeating your life all the time right that if the world itself evolves and that the people around you evolve then you might not be in this state of deep boredom i thought of a separate case so there's a graphic novel called after death by jeff LeMaire. and he has a uh, characters who are physically immortal but their memories only last 100 years so similar to the kinds of cases that you guys have alluded to and i wonder whether we can talk about these beings as being immortal. Do they survive the immortality? If you are on this treadmill of only a hundred years worth of memories and the rest sheds, are you really immortal? And I wonder if we think about the kind of religious cases where we we talk about an eternal soul, let's say a reincarnation case that moves between bodies with no memory of the prior lives, can we say that there's a surviving that goes on between the sort of immortal soul and its future forms?
1: Yeah, this raises all sorts of interesting issues. One point I would make is even if a particular memory only lasts a hundred years, for me, the question is whether there are direct links of the sort that we were talking about over time. So in other words, let's say you acquire a set of memories and you live for a hundred years, and then on your hundredth birthday, you still have all those memories, let's say, implausibly. Then the next day you've lost all hundred of them. I agree. It's unclear that you're the same individual. It depends on your account of personal identity. But if each memory lasts a hundred years, but then let's say when you're five years old, you have a very vivid memory. Your first day of kindergarten or someone's really mean to you in kindergarten, very vivid memory that you have when you're a hundred But now when you're six years old, you have a very vivid memory of making your first close friend in first grade. Now does that memory last a hundred years? You know? So it's not as though all your memories are extinguished on your hundredth birthday. It's just a hundred years worth of them, you know, as it were, are. But then you'll still have more as you go forward. That's all that's required to me. In other words, you know, Wittgenstein used the metaphor of a rope and the strands are connected to each other, but there's not one strand from the beginning to the end. It's still a single rope. And the chain analogy, that's what I would say. But let me also point out that this is related to the afterlife kind of questions, religious afterlife questions about personal identity. And it you might think it depends certainly if you have a bodily identity criterion then you're not going to say you can live in the afterlife that you have eternal life or eternal existence as the same person but if you have this view that you're just a soul or if you have the view that it's not essentially religious but you are a basic subject of experiences so you Are a basic subject, but you're not identified in terms of any of those experiences memory, your narrative, history. You know, what makes you the particular embodied individual you are in ordinary life is your narrative, your past, your memories, your history. That's the kind of people we are. But you could ask, are those features essential to us? So another way of thinking about metaphorically is. Am I a stream of consciousness, a stream of memories, or am I the the river bed? Am I the river or the riverbed? Now, that riverbed can have very different water in it. It's not defined by the particular river. It's just the bed of the river. And so you could think, I, as a basic subject, am not defined by my particular narrative or experiences. I'm not essentially that. And if that's right, then you could imagine, you know, for instance, living forever in communion or in conversation with or identity with God. Let me give you a couple examples that may help to illustrate this. I could imagine that I was switched as a baby in the hospital and they mixed the babies up and they sent me home with a couple that weren't my biological parents and they sent their children home with my biological parents. And I could imagine being raised in this other family. And, you know, at 30 years old, I could imagine being told about this. And it's natural for me to imagine that I'd wonder what would my life have been like, you know, if I had been raised by my biological parents. Now, I wasn't, but and all my narrative, and my experiences, my memories, my values as they have been developed actually might well have been very different, but I don't think I'm essentially defined by the river, but by the riverbed. And you can imagine other examples like that. So I'm inclined to think that the basic subject of experiences view is correct, but it doesn't have to be translated into or analyzed in terms of a religious conception.
2: It seems like the Nagel Thought Experiment establishes quite plausibly that more life is better, all things being equal. So assuming there's no risk, assuming you've got an exit strategy, assuming you don't insert something terrible like horrendous boredom, more life is better. And it seems like the arguments in favor of more life are fairly natural. It's things like more pleasures, more relationships, exploring new things, more beauty. So you kind of lump in the values that are associated with our lives. And we say more of that is better because there's more value. And so you've got to insert something bad in order to explain why you shouldn't want that. But now we've kind of done away with the boredom threat in various ways, either by questioning whether we would have it at all or saying if we did have it, we could resolve it through amnesia. What other negatives would persuade us not to continue that would override all the positive values associated with just continuing to be alive
1: two things you have again pointed out a potential difference between the williams thought experiment and the nagel and a problem with extrapolating from the nagel thought experiment to the one-shot case you could say because if i'm told you have one more week, good physical circumstances. You're not deteriorating. You don't have a, suddenly develop a disease or a stroke or you're, you know, your house burns down. Nothing like that. Would you choose one more week of life? Yes, yes, would. And then you imagine the same choice one week later. Would you choose it? Yes. But now would you extrapolate from that series, that imagined hypothetical series of yeses to a yes to a single shot What that, the problem is that, We've kind of defined boredom out of existence in the one week choice case because you're not going to become bored, hyper bored in one week. But then when you think about a one shot deal, now the question of boredom becomes relevant. So I think it's an excellent point, but I think there are more direct ways of doing that because again, the various fictional accounts that you've invoked where people either do or don't eventually become bored. I would challenge them and I would look carefully at their presuppositions and I would try and distinguish questions about positive experiences, pleasures, joys perhaps from projects that we find in our finite lives compelling and engaging and even relationships that we find engaging but not solely because of pleasures, but because of something more, as it were, intrinsic. And so with regard to the pleasures, I don't see why they'd have to run out. I mean, some of them inevitably would, but if you think of some pleasures, they seem to have a certain compelling quality that I don't see would have to run out. So now think of certain pleasures that we find particularly compelling in our finite lives. I mean, delicious, eating delicious food, your favorite delicious food, listening to your favorite, uh, music, whether it be, you know, Wagner's operas or Mozart or Bob Dylan or the sex pistols, whatever. And I know I'm dating myself, but there must be some lower brow groups that are very popular. Whatever really, whatever floats your boat, whatever gets you excited musically or, in terms of art, or visiting a city that you've never been to, or that you have been to, but you're now looking at it anew. It can be an extraordinarily uplifting and sublime experience. Sex, a healthy sexual experience, is a kind of compelling thing. I mean, you know, the French call it the petite mort, the little death, and I think it's Partly because there are no distractions. Nothing else will get you interested in the moment of orgasm or shortly thereafter. I'm not sure exactly why they do that. But in any case, all of these higher and lower pleasures have a certain compelling quality to them. Now, mistake. The think of them as bunched together relentlessly or inappropriately, you know, like eating your favorite food for breakfast, lunch, dinner, and snack day after day. Thai food, some people, there's an interesting debate about Thai food, and some people think they could imagine themselves continuing to really enjoy Thai food forever. Phil Bricker, interesting philosopher at UMass, who was my colleague many years ago at Yale, complained about certain scenarios involving immortality that they would involve a piddling alpha null immortality because there are orders of immortality he wants even higher orders to enjoy his typhoon but Shelley kagan in a more curmudgeonly orientation thinks no eventually he would get tired of everything including typhoon which he currently likes but my view is if you bunch up things inappropriately it's of course going to Expunge the pleasure, as it were. But if you distribute it in an appropriate way and mix your activities, uh, I don't see why they would inevitably flame out, as it were, or um, lose their compelling quality. I just don't see that. I mean, if you think about it, think about something that you just love. I suppose there are some things that you just love because it's the first time or the only time your first kiss, or the first time you climb a certain mountain, it's special partly because it is the first time. But then there are other joys, like climbing mountains or kissing or having a close relationship with a colleague, whatever it is that I think can continue to be compelling. So, that I mean, I know we can go on to talk about projects if you want, but if you just think about pleasures, I don't think they would have to run out. I just don't get it I think it's kind of a curmudgeonly view but and it kind of depends on perhaps conflating certain kinds of pleasure some would run out or thinking about an inappropriate distribution of pleasures but even in our finite lives if you compulsively pursue a kind of pleasure it's going to run out like if I just as an example I sometimes find a song or a piece of music really engaging and a new piece I hear. And I think that's really great. So now I start listening to it over and over and I still find it engaging for a while, but then my wife says, stop listening to it. It's going to wreck the pleasure. And it's true. It's true. Maybe the great music you can always go back to, but even then you can't listen to Buck's Unaccompanied by partita or, you know, forever, or his beautiful cello partitas. I mean you could listen to them forever in the sense that you come back to them at different parts of your life once you've experienced other things but if you listen day after day all day then even that great music would lose its compelling quality so what i'm saying is i'm not willing to concede this curmudgeonly view that all our pleasures and positive experiences would inevitably flicker out i just That would require more argumentation. That's maybe hard to argue for.
0: So a couple of thoughts. The first is that maybe it's quite hard for us to truly conceive of the infinite. That if the immortality that we're buying isn't the one where you can exit, it's true immortality, that you will live forever. That the distribution doesn't get you out of it because there's an infinite number of ways in which you can distribute your pleasures and you will necessarily repeat them or that the distributions will lack novelty. That at some point in time, you will have eaten every possible meal, listened to every song, read every single book, and then you are doomed to do it again and again. And if we assume that you are maintaining your memories of it, so these things don't feel afresh, that you have the Sort of sushi with uh, and whatever other interesting things in it and you say it's the millionth time i've had it you know that they, they would feel like something kind of grim about it but if that is the case yeah. then it would seem that it's very bad to be a god that we think of gods as being those beings that cannot end themselves that they are everlasting and so if we take the view seriously that the infinite is bad for you then it would be bad to be a deity you know whether that be yahweh or zeus it would
1: be bad interesting let me start with the point that if you were truly immortal inevitably you would become bored because things you'd repeat things and eventually you would have repeated things enough that they would lose their rewarding or compelling quality i think that this is not obviously right because i think we can still choose how we distribute those pleasures and it may be that a delicious sushi meal (laughs) You know, at Nobu or whatever the wonderful sushi restaurant you like after, if you kind of distribute it so that every couple of hundred years you have it, it's not clear that would become grim to me. And this is, I just use kissing as an example, but if you kiss someone, your partner, your romantic partner. And, you know, a few days later, they kind of, it's clear they want to kiss you again. If you say, sorry, been there, done that, I've already kissed you, I'm bored. I mean, that wouldn't really be very plausible because there's something beautiful about it when you consider not just the physical sensations, but the environmental ecosystem, as it were. So it's just not clear to me that even in extrapolating into an indefinite or infinite future, these things would eventually not have energy that we're attracted to. On the other hand, I'd also say this is another reason why I don't think it's clear that we'd want true immortality. I distinguish, uh, and this terminology comes from a book by Stephen Cave, who is not a pro-immortality guy, but he distinguishes true immortality, which is invulnerability to death, no exit strategy, invulnerability to death, you live literally an infinite amount of time versus what he called radical life extension. And in radical life extension or medical immortality, you don't die from natural causes. You don't die from diseases, but you could still take your own life or you could still be murdered. You know, someone could shoot you in such a way that they kill you. You're not invulnerable to that. Let's say you have no exit strategy, that would seem to imply that no one else could end your life or that you wouldn't die by falling off a cliff or being shot. So if you do have an exit strategy, you're not going to live forever in the sense of an infinite amount of time. Now, You know, it's hard to predict or kind of in a reliable or in a very convincing way determine an average number of years that a medically immortal would live in other words someone whose body is not deteriorating and is not going to die of a heart attack or of cancer how long before that person will fall off a cliff or have a rock land on his head or be murdered by a jealous lover whatever it is and Some people would estimate about 6,000 years. That's medical immortality. And that's considerably longer, of course, than the 300 years that is envisaged in William's thought experiment. That's the kind of forever that I would find more choice-worthy or more seriously appealing. Something like, on average, 6,000 years. And that would change the thought experiment a lot it would make it much more attractive to keep taking the elixir or to choose the immortality
2: so two separate points the one is just an fyi i wrote i'm a science fiction novelist as well and i wrote a novel called killing kidney which is all about these robots that are invulnerable so they have these incredibly hard exoskeletons and the way that they find meaning is through seeking desperately the elixir of death so they they live their lives trying desperately to find novel ways to die so they throw themselves off high cliffs and they drown themselves in lava and they try various mechanisms to die and kidney is this character who runs suicide tours trying to find new ways to kill people and kill himself and no one has succeeded until one day someone on his tour succeeds and the way that that life in this society progresses in the way that people find meaning is in trying to find death so that's just an aside the second issue i wanted to raise was and now i've just lost it hold it <laughs> i had a lovely second question it's just disappeared
1: well come up you can come up with it after i i deal with the first one or later but the first one's a great one i didn't know you had that novel i have to get a hold of it It's ironic because some philosophers and literary figures, authors have argued that life is meaningless because of death and other people think it's only meaningful because of death. It would be meaningless if we didn't have death. So, you know, people have come at it with very different orientations and conclusions upon reflection. Yeah. I think that if you literally could not die, I think then that changes the equation or changes the question fundamentally. If you had no exit strategy, it would be a very risky thing to choose that kind of scenario or that kind of forever. And it's much harder to argue that under that kind of scenario, life could remain meaningful and engaging. Right. I agree. Now. I don't, I'm not convinced that you could argue successfully that such a life inevitably would be not worth choosing. It might be that robots have only a limited range of capabilities for sensation and pleasure and experience and relationship, although maybe not. But maybe our intuitions about robots would be fundamentally different from human beings, but maybe not. But it's interesting. But I think it is different. Like If you imagine radical life extension, you still are at risk of dying every day. You know, this afternoon, you could be run over by a, a lorry or a semi-truck. I, I don't mean to jinx any of us, and I know it's a morbid thought, but you never know. You know that on average, you live 6,000. So you might live 10,000 years, or you might die tomorrow. So that gives a certain, I don't know, energy to you, or it implies a certain fraughtness. Life is fraught, it's precious. You never know when it's going to end, though you know you'll have on average 6,000 years. That kind of existence, I think, you could argue as much more easily that it could be meaningful, okay? Because, although I'm not giving up on the hope that even a true immortality might be meaningful. Okay, so that's the way I would put it. I think it's, yeah, it's interesting. Like I say, some people think that life is only meaningful because it's, It's Death gives meaning to it. And so there are fictional dystopias that are presented in in which people are desperate to have the opportunity to die. I think that probably presupposes a negative answer to the ideas that are questions that I'm posing about the possibilities for indefinitely regenerating projects and pleasures. I mean, I want to return very briefly to the idea that you can distinguish pleasure from other kinds of projects. I've been suggesting that certain pleasures wouldn't necessarily run out, and I'm inviting you to consider that carefully. Consider the really compelling ones distributed in an appropriate way. The way, Kierkegaard talked about rotating your crops. You know, a farmer has to rotate their crops, and he actually explicitly made the analogy with the esthete you have to rotate your pleasures. But then think of projects like maybe you're fascinated by mathematics or you're fascinated by great you know, theoretical physics or you are very engaged in seeking greater progress in equality and justice and cleaning the environment. I mean, we're assuming that the environment is sufficiently clean to support a desirable life, but there are obviously going to be health issues that can be addressed and social issues and environmental issues that could still be addressed indefinitely. I don't know, at least for on average, 6,000 years, why would those projects run out? I mean, the pleasures don't have to run out and our intellectual fascination, I don't think there's, correct me if I'm wrong, but there is no limit to mathematical questions (laughs) and it's doubtful that we'll ever really figure out the origins you know of the universe maybe we will but those questions are going to be on the table for a long time and people who are compelled by them i don't think if you ask them will this eventually run out they're going to say yes so the whole project of love and deep friendship and collegiality those are transformative they transform our lives they give our lives a kind of sublime magic where we transcend the ordinary aches and pains and colds and flus and even more significant you know back injuries and cancer love and friendship can bring us through and help us why would we stop caring about that i I mean i just think that's why I use the term curmudgeon, and that's why I poke fun at Bernard Williams and the British countryside in the winter. I have lived through a winter in Oxford, and it's beautiful at other times of year. Even winter has a kind of beauty to it, but I think you could inappropriately extrapolate.
0: So I wonder if our ordinary moral obligations would be the same in a world in which people were immortal, and let's say it could be a of injuries that they suffered. So we ordinarily think that it's wrong to cause someone pain, to besmirch their good name, to lock them up against their will. But maybe in a world where you persist infinitely, that the thing that matters most is variety, that you would sort of want to be able to experience a variety of things. So given the option of being able to play captor for a while, to kidnap someone, to be a rapist, might be the kinds of things you say, well, I can't lead a full life. If I'm only doing, you know, the ordinarily morally good things, I need to try the dark side as well. And also, it's not so bad for the other person. So ordinarily, if you suffered this traumatic thing in a short life, it might be quite pivotal in your, in the sort of broader scheme of things. We say, wow, this was a landmark moment, but you're going to live forever. So don't worry about it. You suffered a bit of pain. You got kidnapped by me. But in the broad scheme of things, it's not a big deal. And you might think that, well, we all kind of ought to be experiencing this. And it's what you see in the classical literature, right? So the Greek gods aren't saints. They're almost amoral. There might be a sense in which they're bored. And so they toy with human beings and they toy with each other and they experience jealousies and have feuds and act out in all sorts of ways that we think are are bad for a mortal to act.
1: But I wonder if the immortality changes the moral stakes. Great set of questions, and I'll take the opportunity to make a point. Just like I think we shouldn't have a double standard for a finite and infinite or very long lives, that's just unfair. I don't think we should expect immortality to be just like mortality. So I think that there will be differences, and our moral views may well be a little different. As long as there's sufficient similarity, that's all we really need. So obviously, immortality will not be the same in every respect. But as I said, it would be unfair to demand that as long as we have sufficient similarity for it to be a recognizably and potentially appealing human life, that's all we need. Now, with morality, I think the basic values would stay the same. And the basic part of it is because of what I call the logic of human experience or the way we experience the world. So think about pain. I think I have a strong pro tanto reason to avoid causing pain or to alleviate pain when I can in other people. And that's because of the way pain is experienced by human beings and the way it gets in the way of our other values like autonomy. But there's an intrinsic badness to pain, and the mere fact that it will be over doesn't make it much better if it's better at all. And an example I have is: let's say you've hurt yourself in some really significant way; you're in significant pain, but you have your little you know, "I'm immortal" badge—you know, your medical badge that says "I'm immortal." And let's say the rescue, the medical rescue staff or the team come with the ambulance, the paramedics come. And they see your little badge and they say, oh, well, you know, there's no need then for us to give you the pain medication. Eventually it'll go away. That would be outrageous, right? And you'd say, no, I hurt now. Give it to me now. Give me the pain medication now. And that's because of the way we experience pain. And so I think there are basic values that stem in part from the way human beings are hardwired and are wetware, the way we experience the world, and there are normative values that are more structural or stem in a Kantian way from our practical reasoning. We have certain rights and we need to be treated with respect and all of this wouldn't change, I think, in in an immortal world, in in a world where we all knew that we would either be truly immortal or medically immortal. You, You couldn't legitimately tell someone, yeah, I'm causing you terrible pain, but eventually it will be over. And it's needless pain. It's because I want to have a certain experience. To rape someone is a horrible thing that causes pain and suffering, but also it's a horrible normative violation of someone's rights and so forth. And simply to say, I want the experience, I want variety, and eventually you'll get over it, it's just not okay normatively not okay because again of the way the structure of human capabilities and experiences and certain basic normative facts that just wouldn't change now that having been said there might well be some even if they're not basic values and normative rules and principles even if those are going to stay in place some implementations of them or will be dependent on the particulars of our longevity status, you could say. But the point is, I don't think immortality implies immorality by our present standards. Maybe some changes, but not changes to the basic values and the way we need to treat each other.
2: I was wondering whether the problem, contrary to what Mark's suggesting, it wouldn't be better. It might be worse. So suppose you inflict damage on someone. Now they have not just a short lifespan to deal with the ramifications of that, but a very long one. And yes, they have more time maybe to go to therapy and fix it. But, you know, from what psychologists understand, our psyches are not that malleable. You know, we don't change that much. Sure, we're able to grow and change and heal, but that scar will be that scar. And it seems like we would have a greater duty to treat people with even greater care because Mm -hmm. any damage we inflict could be long-term damage, which is multiplied in its viciousness because there's a long time for it to be experienced.
1: I think that's an interesting point. Also, if we have more time, we have more opportunities in principle for reconciliation and for more productive relationships with people. And if we poison those then we lose opportunities for variety and rewarding things in our lives as well. So I, yeah, so I would push back. I mean, it's a great question. And a lot of people have that thought. I'm not saying that Mark is wedded to the idea, but I would push back against it. Another point I think is important to remember is immortality, even of a true nature, certainly medical immortality, does not imply freedom from all pain or suffering or impairment, impairment physically, or even impairment in our relationships. And we're gonna wanna keep our bodies in as good a shape as we can. I mean, it's interesting to ask, if you're medically immortal, what does that mean? Does that mean you can eat as much as you want and drink as much as you want and use whatever recreational drugs you want and still be fully at your optimal biological capabilities? I don't think it has to be conceptualized like that. If it is, then it might not be sufficiently similar to our finite laws to think about it coherently as a choice. So I do think there have to be consequences for your choices and impairments. Now those impairments might be able to be fixed eventually, but still there will be bad consequences to some of your choices and you need to think about that. So one of the kind of classic concerns
0: with immortality is that if you have a being who's immortal but everyone else perishes, that there's this curse of loneliness. And Shriver has an interesting variation of this. So she imagines that her couple who are contemplating suicide instead go into a hibernation tank. So they're cryogenically frozen. But it turns out that it takes much, much longer for them to be unearthed than they expect. And so when they are unearthed, they find out that they are basically the last people who look like the people that you and I are, they are dwarfs, that the new beings speak a different language, that their norms are totally different, that the way they look is totally different, and they are kind of viewed as freaks in this new society, as reddicks, in the same way that we might think of a Australopithecus in relation to us. And that might be its own kind of curse. And it seems that what's interesting about immortality is maybe our view on it should be to say, it's a neutral state. The other factors are going to play a big role in deciding whether it's good. So if the environment you live in is good, if the people around you are people that you want to spend your time with, that if you're not in unending pain because you know bodily you will be able to regenerate it, all those things seem to make immortality good. But once we pick away at those pieces, then it starts to look like a curse. And so it might be that immortality is not doing too much of the work. It's all the other stuff
1: that does the work. I agree with everything, except I'm not sure about the last, but I totally agree that the desirability or worthiness of choice of ex- extended life or immortality would depend on, crucially, these other facts, you know, definitely. And I think, again, a hasty generalization that leads many people to have a negative view about immortality is to extrapolate from our interactions with certain Elderly people, let's say, who have begun to lose their memories or who've become demented or who have trouble with mobility because they're so impaired, they have arthritis, they're in terrible pain. And they, they ask themselves, Would I want to live forever and getting deteriorating more and more and more? Of course, we wouldn't. But that isn't the way the thought experiment goes. That would not be interesting. It's like, No, I don't want that. Nobody would rationally want that. So those facts are crucially important. I agree. Now, I, I mean, you could ask, is a life with a significant or sufficient number of those meaningfulness, diminishing factors, or pleasantness, diminishing factors, with a sufficient number of those, would that life be desirable? Presumably no, or maybe not. But I think that's a separate question from whether living forever under good circumstances would be desirable. But uh, but that I'd have to think more about, but the one thing I would also point out because this came up a bit before, and it's related to your question, Thomas Nagel actually in a passage separate from the one about the thought experiment that we've been talking about, argued that life itself is intrinsically good. Even if you think of it as an empty container, (laughs) in which you'd put experiences. That container just is good. So if other things equal, it's better to continue to live. Now, of course, if you add into the container boredom, hyperboredom, pain, impairment, then it might on balance not be worthy of choice to continue that life. But life itself is intrinsically good. And that's kind of an interesting idea.